This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We've been talking about nutrition and supplements and how we should eat, and we all know how we should eat, but we don't always eat the way we, we um, know we should. And we are... We have learned a lot about the brain and how uh, what causes us to eat when we're not hungry. And so we're going to be talking about that, something that, that affects all of us. And we're also going to be talking the extreme of that, um, which is food addiction. So let me just start off with a question. Does food addiction exist? Um, and don't raise your hands. We're not going to get into big, big debates, but if I had all my scientific colleagues here, I would tell you there, there, um, this is still a slightly controversial topic 15 years after you know it's been studied. But in general, I'm going to tell you what most of us agree upon in the field. Um, this is how I see the field after studying it and, and reading everything I can. And then I'm going to introduce um, Ashley Mason, who's going to tell you about some new research in this area. And then we're going to hear from our three panelists. And I just want to ask that um, no pictures be taken. And what you're hearing tonight is deeply personal in the service of, of helping all of us, helping society underst understand what people go through. So I'm going to give you my bottom line, which is food addiction in that simple form of thinking we're addicted to any food doesn't exist. Food additive addiction exists, it's pervasive, and so many more people are suffering it than we really realize. What's an additive? Sugar. We understand a lot about sugar and the brain, and possibly caffeine as well. These are, these are not foods. These are purified additives. And a uh, paper is going to come out very soon by Rob Lustig, who you heard last week, that is putting this forth, that I think is going to really clarify our understanding. Because a lot of people say, how can you be addicted to food? We always need food. It's not addictive. So what makes a substance addictive? The quicker the substance hits the brain, the more addictive it is. So think about inhaling cocaine. That takes about 10 minutes to have a peak response. Now, what about smoking crack cocaine? That takes less than two minutes to have a peak response. And we know how deadly and addictive crack cocaine is compared to, to inhaling cocaine. So now think about sugar. How would you get your brain addicted to sugar? How can you get pure sugar without fiber and nutrients and protein to slow it down? Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. Drinking liquid sugar. Straight. Maple syrup. So about 10 years ago, this idea of food addiction was quite new and quite controversial. And finally, we had a scientific meeting. And it wasn't cut, sponsored by NIH. It was sponsored by a private philanthropic citizen whose best friend had food addiction. We gathered in an island near Washington, and one of the people there, a senior researcher, Bart Hobel, had been studying rodents and addiction for years. He turned to sugar in his later years, and he was absolutely determined to understand and show people this was acting like a drug. And what he showed was the first model or proof of sugar addiction. If you give rats sugar, they will binge on it. And if you 
they will turn into little drug addicts. And if you take that sugar away, they will go through withdrawal symptoms, physical withdrawal, teeth chattering and everything. And then if you give them the sugar again, they have even bigger binges. They need much more to get the same feelings of calm. Tolerance, physical tolerance. So this raises the question, does this exist in people? And now here we are. <laughs> 10 years later, what do we know? There is some fabulous research out there. One of Bart Hobel's students, Nicole Vina, is showing how, you know, more deeply how um, sugar and other sugar is causing addiction in the brain. There is Ashley Gearhart, who is, has made a scale for measuring addiction, food addiction, that Ashley will be showing. So we're catching up to what real people's experiences are. And uh, I will tell you that the most convincing thing to me what has not been data, although data always speaks, we need data, but it was at that conference, at the end of the conference, after hearing about the rodents, we had people telling their stories. We had a panel of some brave people who were sharing their lived experience of food addiction, suffering. The common themes were, out, were phenomenal, of having histories of family drug addiction. One woman talked about when she was in her depths of despair and having cravings, it was maple syrup. And that's what did it. And I never forgot that. And so we've been studying different aspects of compulsive eating and reward drive. Not everyone with obesity has this. It's not about obesity. About 50% of, of people with obesity have binge eating disorder. Binge eating disorder is not food addiction, but it's a step closer to it. It's on a spectrum. About 50% of people have what we call excessive reward drive, and they live with this day in and day out, and it's not fun. It is feelings of cravings and preoccupation with food, feeling like you cannot fully control how much you eat, and not being satisfied. So this is an important syndrome. This isn't addiction per se, but this is common, and this is a cause of overeating and metabolic disease. And lean people can have this syndrome too. So we've been studying this. Ashley Mason helped uh, refine a scale for this. We call it reward-driven eating. You can take the scale. We're gonna, she's going to put it up on her website soon. So there it is. The food industry is just having a very profitable time with this substance. And now think about, what is it for you if you have a drug of choice? What is it that you crave? Why do you crave it? Often it's not actual need. It's not caloric need. There are other needs that aren't fulfilled. There's stress that's tricking us into feeling like we must have this now. It increases cravings. So we know a lot about, about the role of stress. So tonight we're going to now hear from Ashley Mason who is one of the most prolific, creative, and rigorous researchers in this area. She's an assistant professor here at UCSF in the Department of Psychiatry, and she uniquely studies and understands reward drive and cravings in daily life and how that affects people when they try to lose weight, who's successful, who's not. She's done iPhone studies. She's done real-life studies. Um, she, she's been studying a biological measure to understand level of food addiction in the brain. And this has tremendous significance, for, as you'll hear from her, for understanding this as a medical condition, for understanding and reducing stigma. 
She also, where is Ashley? <laughs> okay, I have to see her face when I say this last line. She also has the credentials of being a dark chocolate chocoholic. Seriously, I mean, if there's criteria, she meets it. So she may tell you about that too. Um, if you're interested in treatments for food addiction or mindfulness-based eating, which can help the spectrum of compulsive eating, we do have some resources. We have a table out here um, from FA, which is has, has helped a tremendous number of people. Um, and we will have resources on our, on our Coast website. This is Samantha Schilf, who helped organize this evening. Thank you so much, Samantha. She runs our center. Um, and I'm going to turn this over to Ashley, and we'll all get to hear about her amazing work. Thank you. So when we think about addiction, we think of drugs, alcohol, gambling. But think about other forces that drive our behavior, too. Uh, look carefully here and see that alcohol is addictive. This is um, a nice list of what addiction actually looks like. But you can actually just take all those red words and change them a little bit. And this still makes sense, right? Food can fit in this model. I haven't get a comment to the effect of, well, drugs and alcohol are chemicals. But think about our food today. Pretty chemical if you go to a gas station around the corner, right? Think about a Twinkie. We're not physiologically wired to handle the neural experience of a Twinkie. Where in nature will you find that amount of sugar without any fiber and with that incredible amount of fat and mouthfeel? You're not, you're not going to hunt for a Twinkie in the wild, right? <laughs> we, we didn't evolve for that. Um, but the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, or the DSM for short, lists these criteria for addiction. And um, from this, Ashley Gearhart at the University of Michigan has developed a tool that maps directly onto these criteria to measure food addiction. Food addiction actually isn't a diagnosis in the DSM right now. But she basically just took what we use to diagnose other substance dependencies and translated it for food. We also use the reward-based eating drive scale, which I will talk about in just a little bit. And as um, Alyssa mentioned, it is on our website, and you'll be able to get it for free and read all about it. So I just contrasted food and alcohol, but I want to make another comparison for you. 23% of people who use heroin go on to develop full-blown opiate addictions. That actually means that most people who try or use heroin aren't actually becoming addicted to opioids. Okay. When people who are addicted to opioids seek treatment for their addictions, they go to their doctor's offices, doctors don't just say, aha, I have your solution. Stop that. <laughs> just don't do that. Right? That's, that's not how it works. They're more likely to refer them to addiction treatment, help them find a clinic, hook them up with other services. Right? It's, it's not just, oh, well. But if we flip over to food, about 20% of people meet criteria for food addiction. Again, we just flipped the words in the criteria slide I already showed to get there. Um, and since we all eat, food isn't avoidable. This means that most people who eat food aren't actually addicted to food. Right? Uh, food addiction is more common among people who are overweight or obesity, uh, who are women and who are 35 and older, but we know that it can affect anyone. And when people seek treatment for food addiction, which often presents as an umbrella of weight loss treatment, doctors often do just say, I have your solution. 
stop eating that and go to this exercise class. Poof, you're fixed. Right? But kind of like Bob Newhart did on Mad TV. I don't know if anybody's familiar with this skit, but it was a great skit where a patient would come in, he'd say, you pay up front for your services. He'd take their payment. He'd tell them their problem. They'd tell him their problem. He would say, I have your solution. Just stop that. Check out with my secretary on the way out. It was pretty funny. But when it comes to treatment for obesity, people often know, oh, you know, I really should eat the salad and not the pizza. People know that. I should go to the exercise class, not sit on the couch for two hours. People know that. They don't need someone to tell them that. Um, and we debate about you know, nutrition all the time, and we could get into those nuances. But big picture, people don't really need a handout for this. In cases like this, doctors may refer them to exercise programs or a nutritionist, but that's not hitting on the problem that they're actually suffering from, um, feeling addicted to particular food additives or particular food combinations or particular foods. So I invoked this opioid model on the previous slide because it turns out that the opioid system has a lot to do with our eating behavior. I'm going to briefly unpack the opioid system here in a very, very broad sense. There's exogenous opioids, or those that we actually introduce into our bodies. That's like heroin, opiate medications. Then there's endogenous opioids, and those are naturally occurring in our bodies, and we release them when we do pleasurable things like eating. Uh, when we eat a tasty food, we experience a release of these endogenous opioids, which act on specific receptor sites in our brains and remind us that, hey, this tastes good. This is pleasurable. I should eat this again, right? We learn which things taste good and which things don't. Um, we can alter our eating behavior and our preferences by actually changing the action at these receptor sites. And as an example from the overdose literature, with which many of you are probably aware of because it's been in the news a lot lately, we can give an overdose person opioid antagonists, or Narcan, to save their life by acutely reversing their high. Right? This action is happening at those receptor sites. Um, other studies have taken this to the realm of food, things that we're working on. And when we administer opioid antagonists to animals and to humans, they find their food less tasty and they start to eat less of it. This is a really big hammer, right? We're giving this drug to them in their brains, so everything's going to be less fun, but it just so happens that the only thing that's in the rat cage is food. That's their only option for fun, right? Um, but this has a lot of implications for obesity treatment. Many folks have begun looking at opioid antagonists and thinking, hmm, well, maybe we can use this, use this as a weight loss medication. And you may be familiar with Contrave. That's bupropion with naltrexone. So that's a combination drug that tries to antagonize opioid receptors to reduce eating. But these medications cause withdrawal effects, right? Because that's the point of the opioid antagonists. Who would want to take a drug every day that makes you feel a little nauseated? Going to stick with that? No, not so much. So rather than use opioid antagonists as a treatment method, what we're looking at is how to use them to identify people in need of a different kind of treatment than traditional diet and exercise programs for losing weight. So getting down to this mechanism, can we impact food cravings in the real world using an opioid antagonist? So first we wanted to see, okay, what does this look like when we do this with people, not rats, in their actual habitat, their homes, their lives? Um, we wanted to see if blocking the endogenous opioid system in a general sense, again, with a very blunt instrument, a pill taken once a day, would impact food craving intensity, which is a key determinant of addictive-like behavior, right? We crave things, and if we didn't, maybe 
things would be easier. Um, but what we had participants do is complete a self-report measure of their reward-like eating behavior. So you can actually go look at this scale on this website. There's a Get the Red Scale page on the website, and you can download the literature about it, download the scale itself. Uh, it's pretty basic and easy to take the quiz and add it up. Participants took home five indistinguishable pills, placebos, and naltrexone pills, and they took them on specific days, so we told them which days to take which pills. No one knew which was which, and they reported on their craving intensity of the day at the end of the day each day. Then they returned all their diaries at the end. And what we found was that the people with more severe reward-like eating with that scale, they had larger reductions in their craving intensity on the days when they took the opioid antagonist. So it worked on them. Now, would they have continued taking it forever? Probably not, because might have gotten a little nauseated, but they were in a study, so they did it. Um, so their cravings were less. And this may ultimately be an interesting way to identify people who have more opioid dysregulation in their brain related to food, because these participants were all selected to not be using opioid drugs, not be doing other things that might be overstimulating their endogenous opioid system. So then we use this tool to look at how people with different, different responses to the naltrexone actually fared when we randomized them to different treatments for weight loss. So we looked at whether people with obesity who have more food addiction system, symptoms benefit from a weight loss treatment when we add self-regulation training to it. In this context, it was mindfulness training. Before treatment, before the weight loss intervention treatment, we had people take home a placebo pill and a naltrexone pill. They didn't know which was which, and they took them on two different days, and we measured their nausea responses to that. So they self-reported how nauseated they got. And we used that to predict how they would do in treatment. So the folks who had the high nausea response, if they got the weight loss treatment with the self-regulation, they did way better than if they got just the weight loss treatment. Right, so the self-regulation tra training really helps them. And this has some or a lot of implications about how we're gonna get people to the right treatments. So for some people, using a biological and a behavioral test like this, it could reduce some self-stigma, right? Really understanding and believing, oh look, I have opioid dysregulation in my brain, I can look at this test, I can see that this is actually happening in me. Um, that might help them think a little bit differently about their struggle with diet and exercise programs and sticking with change, right? Um, and this may also help doctors think differently. If they begin to process more deeply the idea that the opioid system, which is really powerful, right, is involved in what we're doing and how we're managing our health, our metabolic health, our weight, maybe they might do less just, just diet and exercise and, that, and send you out of the office, they might do less of that and start thinking a little bit more about how to refer people to treatment that's gonna get at the core of the issue, right? Some of the more emotional food addiction-like symptoms. So, I just wanna leave you with this idea. Our, our endogenous opioid systems determine a lot of our behavior. We do things because they feel good and we don't do other things because they don't feel good. And our opioid systems are what are mediating our experiences. Everyone in this room has an endogenous opioid system. We shouldn't discount this powerful system and think of our behavior as solely a product of our willpower, because it's not. There are behavioral 
that is non-drug interventions for addictive-like behaviors, and they work. Um, we at the Osher Center tend to study a good deal of mindfulness training methods, uh, like mindful eating, mindfulness-based stress reduction, but RC randomized controlled trials, or RCTs, have also shown that motivational interviewing, um, different types of cognitive and behavioral therapies, they can also reduce addiction symptoms. But that all said, the field of food addiction is fast growing. Um, we're fortunate to be here today with some people to learn from the front lines. Um, and there's way more to it than what I presented. But I just wanted to communicate to you that this is a very powerful system in the brain and we should be paying attention. Okay, fabulous. Ashley, thank you so much. And you can read about her work more on her website. So next we welcome this very brave group of three community advocates who are sharing their story to help other people. Breaking the silence about addiction and recovery is not easy. And there's tremendous stigma around weight, around addiction. And the only way that we can really understand it, it's, it's not through data, it's through brave people coming forward and explaining their experience. If you're watching on UCTV, you'll notice that um, our first panelist, who has, you won't hear her name, you won't see her face. And that's because she's coming to us through Food Addicts Anonymous, and there are two important principles in FAA, adopted from AA. Number one, you must feel safe to seek help. And that means you must know that you're going to remain confidential and anonymous. Number two, FA is not about any one leader, personality, charismatic person representing FA. It's not about personality. It's about principles. So we'll start off with Anna, our panelist from FA, to share her story. Thank you, Anna. Good evening. Um, I'm going to share my story. It's, it's not a unique story, but it's one of very many people's stories. So I'm uh, 63 years old. I'm five foot nine, and I'm a Latina. I have gained and lost 100 pounds probably six times in my life. I, lost, I have lost weight through Weight Watchers. I've lost 100 pounds through Jenny Craig, 100 pounds through Nutrisystem, Optifast, Nutritionists, Calorie counting, point counting, starvation, and exercise. In each one of those uh, approaches, I learned how to lose weight. And I spent a lot of money. Inevitably, life happened. And uh, I would abandon my way back up to those 100 pounds and plus. And for me, my particular kind of food addiction is that I don't have a lever that my daughter has and uh, people I can see have. And I watch, and I watch them eat and they leave stuff on their plate. And I'm just in awe of those people. I don't have that. And I, whatever that lever is just doesn't exist for me. So for me, I had to eat till I was satiated would mean I would way overeat, like Thanksgiving dinner three times a day kind of overeating. I wasn't a grazer. I didn't wake up in the middle of the night to snack. I ate pretty good food, uh, but I ate a lot of food. And that's how I satiated was overeating. So by the time my body caught up with that much food, I was pretty 
pretty much in a lot of pain most of the time. Um, in my 40s, um, I adopted uh, a daughter and uh, as a single mom, working full time, and, uh, and I have a pretty full, meaningful life, a lot of community work. And uh, so for me, life was so hard and so challenging. By the time I got to myself, the only thing for me was the path of least resistance was just to eat. And for me, it was like, I deserve to eat. Uh, because this is the one part of my life where it doesn't ask anything of me. And so and in my 40s, in starting to raise my daughter, I, I basically ate my way up to 300 pounds. I felt sexually unattractive, but not having a man in my life was a price I was willing to pay to eat like that. I was extremely uncomfortable, but not fitting in an airline seat not being able to pick up anything off the floor or turn over in bed was a price I was willing to pay to eat that way. I was miserable and ashamed because it's hard to be in this world at 300 pounds. But not being present to the joys of my life was a price I was willing to pay to eat like that. I had come to the point in my life where I thought, I'm going to be this big the rest of my life, and that's okay. And finally, at about 55, I got really sick, cumulatively sick. My body was unforgiving. Um, I had diabetes. I had uh, to take metformin. I had sleep apnea and had to get a CPAP machine in order to sleep. Um, I had hypertension and had to take medication. I had acid reflux and had to sleep sitting up and take medication. I tore my meniscus in my right leg and I had knee surgery um, scheduled. I had a pinched nerve in my neck which required me to take a narcotic. And I found myself, and every time I was in the primary care doctor's office with the next diagnosis, the next medication, it would be, you know, this is related to your weight. And I would say, yes, I know that. I'm 53 years old. No one has to tell me that. Can you lose weight? Can you lose, like, 15 pounds? And I said, yes, I know how to lose 100 pounds. Nobody has to tell me how to lose weight. I know how to do it. And I would go home, and I would wake up in the morning, and the next thing I knew, I was eating the same way. And for the first time in my life, I felt part of me was afraid to death of dying, and the other part of me couldn't stop eating. And seeing that was so, was so um, uh, numbing. It was numbing for me to see that. And uh, so uh, once I was in front of my primary care doctor and my eyesight started from the blood sugar, uh, I started to lose my eyesight. As an artist, as a person who is visually in this world, that scared the hell out of me. And, I, and she said, you just need to lose 15, can you lose 15 pounds? And I just burst into tears and I said, I can't. I can't. I don't know how to do it. I knew how to do it. I can't find whatever that sweet spot is that we can get traction in, in, in it. I could not find it. And so she, and then, and I said, I, I, 
I am not willing to die. That is not a price I'm willing to pay for food. I'm willing to lose sex. I'm willing to learn, lose comfort. I'm losing, willing to lose any sort of sense of, of pride. But I'm not willing to die and have my daughter be an orphan. So she gave me this trifold, and she said a physician uh, that she worked with had gone to this program, had lost a lot of weight, and kept it off. And so I looked at it, and it said Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous, and it was a faith-based program. And I said, well, thank you very much, and I took it away for about six months, and finally ended up, found my way into a meeting. And, uh, and I'm an atheist, and I walked into this room, and I heard a lot of words that I found to be problematic. And I thought, I'm, I'm, not, I'm in the wrong room. And, <laughs> excuse me, and then the, the format of the meeting was someone stood up. It's a peer-based program, so someone stood up and told her story. And I felt, I felt the authenticity, and I felt... I felt the work on, on, uh, that was being done on themselves, and I, nobody stood up and said, this is what you need to do. Everyone stood up and said, this is what I did. And if this, this you know, echoes for you, you take it. And I felt that there was a solution. And so in FA, there was, uh, and all of this was new to me. I'd never been in a, in a 12-step recovery program. Um, but there are basically three lines of work um, and from the very moment that you start the program, there's no food, or sorry, there's no sugar, there's no flour, and what we eat is weighed and measured. And it's very clean, whole food. But there's, from the very minute you start in maintenance mode. So all the other programs I started was like lose, 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 and then you're on your own. And this was starting on maintenance from day one with the program. How do you do this for a lifetime? And um, so what I learned how to do is have food be medicine, have food be my friend, because it had never been my friend my whole life. Um, and the way I do it is I, um, I do all of my, I buy my food after I have lunch on Saturday, go to the store, buy my food after I eat. I uh, cook all my food, I weigh and measure it, and I pack it up for the week. And for me, I engineer my abstinence, I engineer my, my uh, maintenance this way. And then those three lines of work in FA, the first line is work on oneself. And I think that's where everyone sort of gets grounded. And the second line is working with each other. So we each have a sponsor and we sponsor folks. And then the third line is really how do I do work like tonight to maybe reach another sufferer. And so that is the maintenance. And for six years, I've been able to keep off 130 pounds. Um, within three months, I was off of the metformin. Um, I ceremoniously threw away the CPAP machine into the recycle bin. Don't do that in case you have it. You, could, you can give it to a poor person and they can use it. But I was like, I was so done with this. I canceled my knee surgery. I am off all medication. Uh, the pinched nerve in my neck somehow resolved itself when 130 pounds were gone, was gone. And so I am now fully in my life and choosing life. It's hard work. It's not as if you don't have to keep working at this. But in the surrounding support that, uh, that's in FA for me, 
has been uh, the way in which I choose life. I have to do it every day. And um, so not only do I have my health, and I walk into it every day, um, I'm dating. Uh, I can I can walk up mountains. I can bend over and pick things up. I can sit in an airline seat and not have to ask for an extender or worry about the people on the, each side of me. Um, I am so free of, of that. And um, so, yeah, thank you. This has been my solution. Thank you so much, Anna. Um, our next panelist is Rob Kissler. He has fought with obesity his entire life. He has reached peak weights of over 300 pounds. He has dropped tremendous amounts of weights with fast, and he has ended up uh, finding help with uh, surgery, vertical sleeve, gastrectomy, and we'll hear more from Rob. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I've struggled with obesity since I was uh, probably around 10 years old. Um, actually, Anybody within feeding distance of my mother, any living organism, struggled with obesity. Um, so, we actually had a. What's that? Oh. Okay. Um, in fact, one stormy night, uh, I, the cat jumped off the back of the chair at the same time a tree fell next to the house, and the whole house shook. And we all just looked at the cat, and no one thought like <laughs> that was an abnormal thing. Is that's how big the cat was? So yeah, it's just. <laughs> love was food and food was love so um, but the, there were uh, you know, a lot of social damage you know just being obese and you know in elementary school and high school um, I think it really kind of stunted my uh, social skills quite a bit um, it's actually really stressful for me to be here in front of all these people um, so, and uh, the, but it's so with all those problems I still just sort of let the problem, you know, there's, there were on and off diets, but I never really, you know, was highly successful. Um, the, my, my weight, especially once I graduated college and had money to buy food and a car so that I got less exercise, it just shot up to, so I'm six foot tall, I was about 312 pounds at my highest weight. Um, in 1996, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, um, and I actually worked less at it after that. I think I just was ready to give up. Um, so, or at least, you know, I'm giving up for now. I'll, I'll deal with the problem, you know, next month. There's time. I don't have any problems yet with the, the diabetes. Like, there's, there's time. Um, and, you know, my, my doctor had been warning me for years that, you know, the, 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 I should probably, you know, do weight loss surgery, or he had recommended a, you know, trying a fast. Um, even though he told me, oh, you'll just gain the weight back. <laughs> Um, but it wasn't until I actually started having symptoms. Like about the same time, I, I picked up a new hobby. I got into motorcycling. It became a, a passion. And at about the same time, I also started to develop um, the first symptoms of um, peripheral neuropathy in my feet. Um, and it, even in, in the, 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 treat, the treatments that are available for that, we really don't mix well with motorcycling. It's just a lot of dizziness and just being tired, and um, just the, the drugs didn't mix well with with, with anything actually. Um, so 
that was the finally having the symptoms that I couldn't ignore. Like even right now, actually, my feet are screaming very loudly. <laughs> um, just no way to ignore that. Um, that motivated me to do something. And so the, my first radical attempt was um, a, a protein sparing modified fast, medically supervised, with the MD weight management program here in San Francisco. Um, I lost 80 pounds in about five months. It was one of the easiest things I've ever done. It was actually enjoyable. I, I had lots of energy, like seeing all that progress so quickly, having all the, this is, you know, just having the control sort of taken away from me and not having to make those little decisions every day. Um, so, so even with the, it, it, after that, so after the, you know, losing 80 pounds, like, um, the, I was able to stop taking all the diabetes medication. Um, the neuropathy improved a little bit. Um, and even with aftercare, I kept going to support group meetings with that same program. But over the course of two years, I gained most of the weight back. And that led me to the second like radical attempt, which is the vertical sleeve gastrectomy. So when my doctor first suggested that, I thought he was crazy to even suggest it. But after... Proving to myself, I'm doing the, the fast, losing all the weight, and then still being unable to um, to keep it off. Um, I think that was the proof I needed. It's like, okay, I, I do need extra help. I'm going to take it where I can get it. Um, and so, um, so that that was about a year ago, and um, well, it was a year ago in October, and. I'm now to the point where I, I real, I'm starting to realize that I still have a problem to deal with. Like, it's still possible to gain the weight back. And, um, and I think, like, just to, to kind of tie this back to food addiction, um, like previously I think I really satisfied myself just with quantity. I would like to sit down and eat as much as, to actually enjoy hurting myself. Like, um, but now after the vertical sleeve, that... You know, that, it's not just pain; it's the other effects. Like, you know, that, that's not an option. So, I've really started to develop cravings for 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 sweet things that I'd never, you know, had before. Just like I was never big on desserts, like cake and really calorie dense, very sugary things. But you know, now I'm battling cravings, um, and I I just I sense that it's is a that's you know that concentrated you know. Uh, joy that I get out of that is what's going to replace the, the quantity. Um, and I had never even really thought about food addiction until I was having a frank discussion with a close friend that had actually battled a cocaine addiction. Um, almost destroyed his life um, a couple of times. But he got it under control. And we were sort of comparing stories and how you know, our behaviors were you know, ruining our lives. Um, uh, and you know, talking about like personal responsibility and just making a choice and he had actually been successful in getting on top of his problem and uh you know so i asked him like what what's the secret then and he's like oh uh, it's just complete abstinence it's like for him he had to realize just complete abstinence and you know part of the, i was getting defensive in that conversation because he had, was sort of applying it's like well, you, you can't be addicted to food because you have to have food every day and I, I sort of bought that. I was like, yeah, that's probably true. Um, then I asked him, I'm like, well, if, if every time you had to eat, you also had to use just a little bit of cocaine, um, even though there was a pile of cocaine on the table, like, would you be able to do it? And he's like, no, of course not. That would never work. And I'm like, 
Well, that's kind of like it is for me. I think it's just I I I've really like after after going through the the fast, um, you know, I'm really good when I can when I can abstain. But that's just not something that I can really do on a regular you know on a every day for the rest of my life. So. Um, but yeah, so even after the, the vertical sleeve, a year later, the, um, over the honeymoon period, um, weight started to creep up a little bit. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to actually be here tonight, sort of forced mindfulness, like, because I'm going to remember this for, <laughs> for at least a few weeks. You know, my, my weight will level off at least for a few weeks. And that's you know, sort of my, I'll, I'll, I'll use every mechanism I can. <laughs> so, and yeah, that's, <laughs> that's my story. So much, Rob. Just so much empathy. As with any medical condition, it's it's a process. It's management. It's not something that has you know a stark end. Um. So, okay. So we, we will have a chance for Q and A. Um, our final panelist is Faye Zenoff. She is the driving spirit behind the Center for Open Recovery. In 2014, she became the executive director of the Bay Area affiliate of the National Council of Alcoholism and Other Drug Addictions. And she's a national advocate for for ending the stigma of addiction and championing long-term recovery. Thank you, Faye. Thank you. Hi. Um, So I identify as a woman in open recovery, which for me means that um, I'm available to talk about what life is like and the solution. Um, And I believe we all have different paths. Um, There are many paths, so I don't represent or stand for. I can share my own experience. Um, When uh, Samantha contacted me um, and I heard what the panel was about, um, my first uh, perspective was, is, you know, as a professional in this field, um, you know, how can we fight the stigma so that the people who need help can feel comfortable and not feel shame? Um, but then I began to look at my own story, and as I was sharing with Samantha, um, you know, the first substance I used um, was flour and sugar. My brother died when I was 13 years old. He was a week shy of his 18th birthday. I uh, come from a Jewish family where for a week you sit and people come and pay their respects and they do that with food. And you sit and I remember being in the kitchen and a woman came to me and she slid over this crumb cake and she said, Faye, honey, eat. And there became my solution. And I remember I ate that entire cake. I felt empty. But I heard that that was what I was supposed to do. Um, That was, I was going into eighth grade. Um, In ninth grade, um, I discovered alcohol. Um, I discovered other drugs. And I discovered uh, voice. And that became my drug of choice. That um, if I had the three of them together, I didn't feel uncomfortable, I didn't feel alone, and I didn't have to feel the pain of my brother's death and my parents' subsequent divorce. That using continued for 35 years. Um, And I used relationship, I used money, I used sex, I used uh, food, I used exercise. I used whatever I could outside of myself to feel differently. 
Um, there was times that I cut out sugar and flour. I never thought it was an issue. I thought all women deal with this. You know, when you meet, I met my grandfather. I was eight years old. He flew in for something. He said, turn around, let me take a look at you. And I remember thinking, turn around. Why does he want to see my backside? But that was my introduction to becoming a sexualized woman. Uh, and understanding in my family that the first um, response I would get would be, oh, sweetheart, you look like you've lost weight. Or, oh, sweetheart, you look like you know, you're more in shape. And my physical well-being was what would, people would comment on. Personally, I've never uh, gained or lost more than 15 pounds. Um, I think the the extra 15 pounds came when I went to college. Um, and in college, like a lot of my girlfriends, um, we were all binging. A lot of a lot of them knew how to purge. I didn't. I wanted to. Um, and I definitely can relate to not having a lever. Um, if there was a bag of pretzels, I ate the bag of pretzels. If there was a pint of ice cream, I ate the pint of ice cream. I did not understand people who could put down the pizza. Um, and for some reason, it didn't really show on my body. Um, and I began to learn about um, just eating by myself so I could eat the way I wanted to eat. And that continues till today because one of the things I learned as my life became unmanageable, um, and I began actually to feel insane, um, I couldn't figure out how to stop the chaos. And by then, I was married with children, working, having a life in my community, volunteering, you know, highly functioning. Um, I was also a liar and a cheater and a stealer and um, totally self-involved and obsessed and kind of living this double life. Um, I didn't know that other people had this experience then. I didn't know, I thought we all blacked out when we drank. Um, I thought we all wanted to eat the entire bag. Um, but somewhere along the way I learned, as long as you look good, everything's okay, we don't need to talk about it. So I looked good until I was about 39, 40 years old. And then the insanity of living with this much chaos and self-loathing, um, because I knew I couldn't control what I was doing, uh, I felt like a huge fraud. And um, I remember falling to my knees and thinking, you know, please God and help me. And, you know, I grew up with a religion, but I didn't grow up with a spirituality. I didn't grow up actually with a relationship, with a higher presence or being. Um, so it was interesting to me. I, I knew I couldn't ask anybody. Um, and at 40, I. I cut out everything I could. No more dating. I got a divorce. No more dating. No more flour. No more sugar. Um, no more alcohol. That lasted a month um, because I proved that I'm not an alcoholic if I could you know, last a month. Um, and when I realized, actually, that I, when I put the alcohol inside of my body, I felt tremendous relief. And I never knew what would happen that evening. I didn't know if I would end up, I, I don't know, but it was kind of exciting to me until I realized that I was putting my family in jeopardy and that I was um, putting my life in jeopardy, which I actually didn't care that much about my own life. Um, I think I had such unresolved grief 
um, from my own childhood trauma. So I, I want to fast forward and say um, 11 years ago, I got um, sober from alcohol. And, um, and part of my uh, program of recovery um, wasn't just abstinence, which was, I had to learn how to, you know, they call it uh, you know, put the cork back in the bottle or don't pick up that first drink. Um, but I had to learn how to sit with being uncomfortable. I had to learn how to tolerate feelings and know I wasn't going to die or hurt somebody. I had to learn um, how to show up when I was in shame and how to deal with a personal relationship that I needed to mend. And I, I began to learn those skills that we're supposed to learn in kindergarten, right? But for whatever reason, I really didn't know them. I just stuck with, if you look good, you have an education, you have a certain waist size, you have a certain amount of money in the bank, you're rocking it. And I'm one of those people, too, that when I found recovery, my life fell apart externally. I lost my job. I lost my house. I, as you know, I chose to lose my marriage. Um, and I lost my relationship with my children for a while. I never lost custody, but I, it was a mess. I had a lot of cleaning up to do, but I couldn't do that until I spent years um, working on cleaning up the damage that I had caused so that I could look at myself in the mirror and realize that I am a woman of integrity and that I, that I can ask for help. Um, and I repaired those relationships with myself and with my family members. And then I got to uh, serve in my community, not because I wanted to prove to you how amazing I am, but because I really had something to offer and I understood other people's struggles. I f as I, I had a career in finance, I've had a career in tech, I've had a career in, you know, you name it, because I was in management, so I would change sectors. And um, I would also move, and I think that was part of the way I could get away from myself. But when I got into recovery um, four years ago, I was hired to join this organization called the National Council on Alcoholism and Other Drug Addictions, where we were focused on responding to the unmet needs in our community to reduce the consequences and prevalence of alcoholism and drug addiction. We were based in the Tenderloin. We had been there for 55 years. No one knew who we were. We had a plethora of clients who were basically trying to get DUIs off their record or drug diversion programs because they had you know, run the um, beta breakers and a bag of cocaine fell out, but they're you know, not really drug addicts. And um, So we had a lot of people with Gucci shoes come in, and we had lots of people who lived in shelters come in for different things, but they were mandated to come. And inspired by the work of a woman named Marty Mann, Margaret Mann, who was um, a woman who was a divorcee. She was a woman. Um, she was a gay woman. And um, she was an alcoholic in recovery. She realized that there are lots of programs, but there is an understanding in our greater community that addiction is an issue of the brain. And it's a public health issue. It's not a criminal or moral issue. And she began to advocate for uh, recovery, and she didn't call it that then, but it was, you know, um, treatment, access to treatment. This was in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. She died in 1980 at 80 years old. Um, she herself had been through 13 treatment programs, and, you know, in those days... That was shock therapy, asylums. It was horrendous. Um, 
So inspired by her work, and she's actually the woman who inspired the National Council to exist, um, um, I went back to her reason that there is this organization, and it wasn't to be an extension of the criminal justice system. It was to help people find resources to live a life in recovery. And we changed our name to Center for Open Recovery. We changed our mission to Ending Stigma and Championing Long-Term Recovery. We opened the definition to recovery. So you define it. Who am I to tell you what you're struggling with? And we even... um, We began to, well, we changed our programs. We became a virtual organization, let go of 4,500 square feet in San Francisco. So instead of paying $14,000 a month for rent, we were paying, we're now paying $12,000 a year. Um, And we're doing what's not being done, which is, first of all, coming forward and inviting people in all different industries and walks of life to be open at work and open with colleagues and open at home and with their children to talk about what life and recovery is about because we don't have enough role models to understand life and recovery is incredible and it's possible. We are... We don't look anything like we did when we were in the midst of our struggles. And if I had known as a 15-year-old girl that one of my teachers or my rabbis or my parents' friends had experienced what I experienced and that they could have a loving family and a successful life and no shame, perhaps, I'd like to believe, I would have been able to talk to my parents and ask for some support. Um, So... um, So I was invited to come to speak from the perspective as as a woman in um, recovery from alcoholism and addiction. I want to say as I began this, um, I still love to eat by myself on the couch at night when uh, the kids are asleep and I've put away my computer, which is another thing that I can't seem to put away, my phone. Um, I uh, don't have an off switch around food, but you know, I was taught uh, to tackle that which is going to kill us and then in the order that it's going to kill us. Um, so for me, that's not food or it's sugar. It's not sugar and flour, though I know I have a problem with it. And so what I've been taught is that's called disordered eating, and I know I'm not alone. Um, so for me, part of the salve is the honesty of sharing and hearing other people's stories of not just what it was like, but what it's like today when we have solutions that we can share. Thank you. Thank you so much, Faye. So you can see there's a tremendous wealth of knowledge here. We are going to open this up for questions. We also welcome questions about the research on food addiction and compulsive eating and treatment. Ashley and I will join our panel. Um, We are also taking questions through Twitter, and Samantha will deliver any questions that you might ask us through our so Twitter. So um, we'll come sit with you guys. I think most of us know someone with addiction, food addiction, other addictions, and part of part of the cure is support and un- on that side, um, understanding that this is this is a medical condition. This is not a blaming the victim condition, that addiction, mental illness, and particularly addiction, is treated very sadly in the criminal justice system, the the majority of it. And that's because of stigma and us not understanding this as a medical and brain condition. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do still. 
just ask the first uh, speaker, can you look back and put your finger on the shift that occurred for you when you when you made the change, when, when, when F.A. began working for you? By the time I walked in the room, I was so desperate and afraid. <laughs> and, um, and what I felt when I was there, I heard the word addiction. I'd never heard that before. And I remember seeing a nutritionist once, one of my many nutritionists, and telling her, you know what, I think I'm addicted to bread. I think it's at, like I, I'll buy a, two baguettes and, and eat one on the way home before I get to my dinner to have the other one. And I said, I think I'm allergic to it. And she was like, no, 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 that's not, you know, we're not allergic to food. You know, we're not addicted to food. I said, I, I don't know, something's in there. So when I heard the, the, the term, we're addicted to food, that was something I could sit with really easily. And, uh, and I heard a lot of, um, I heard a lot of solution in the room, and it wasn't a professional telling me what I needed to do. It was people who were with lived experience. And not all their stories I could, re, re, you know, re, uh, what do you call it, resonate with, but their authenticity and the work that I saw that them doing on themselves in many areas of their their life sort of saying to me that this is a solution for me. And, and, and honestly, I was just so afraid of dying and so afraid of living a life like I was living that, um, and, I, and we start working immediately with the sponsor. And so I have a phone call every morning with my sponsor and, and now I have sponsees. And, uh, and all of the, and we go to so many meetings to, you know, and all of those create echoes to take in our day and when I think that I'm just about sick and tired of going to meetings, <laughs> um, I hear something. You know, I hear something in someone's story that this is, oh, yeah, I remember what that was like. So that it was, for me, it was uh, uh, the miracle was keeping the weight off for this much time. That's the miracle, not the losing the weight. So the question was about whether eating sugar might impact our perceptions of pain. Yeah? So who's heard the term comfort food? Yeah? It's called comfort food in many ways because it's comforting when we're upset, when we're otherwise distressed. There's research that actually shows that emotional pain and physical pain activate similar areas in the brain. They've done this in, in Nathan DeWall's Tylenol studies, um, where they've actually looked at, looked at comparisons with this. So emotional pain, physical pain, similar parts in the brain. And we know that when we're feeling bad, stressed, sad, and we eat comfort food, which is often sugary food or, or rich in refined carbohydrates, Sometimes we do feel better. We have momentary feelings of betterness. Now that may not be the case several hours later, but folks definitely do identify comfort food as working for them, reducing their emotional distress. Now, talking about the biology at the receptors, I can't actually speak to that. Uh, but what I can say is that when we do eat these highly palatable, sugary comfort foods, we do increase endogenous opioidergic activity in our brains. And when there's more opioidergic activity in our brains, we will ostensibly feel painless. So the links are somewhat there, 
but have studies been specifically been done for that? I, I don't know. So what she asked is, well, if you're going through withdrawal from food and you're feeling nauseated, why would you want to eat? Right? You're feeling nauseated. So take the nausea away. Right. So when people are going through drug withdrawals, one of the things they want to do is use more of the drug. Kind of like people will often have uh, like a, a Bloody Mary the next morning after a night of too much drinking, uh, even though the drinking made them feel nauseated. Um, a lot of folks will find foods that feel like they settle the stomach. So saltine crackers, other refined carbohydrates, don't sound quite so bad when you're nauseated and this is your issue. But we do think about that a lot. It just so happens that there's so many foods out there that it's likely that maybe whatever food you were eating before we put you into withdrawal, maybe you don't want more of that, but you want something else. Does that make sense? Is there a difference between emotional eating and food addiction? Well, we love that question as researchers because we we do try to slice things up as as precisely and in a granular way as we can. So we have uh, non-homeostatic eating mean that means eating when you're not hungry. You don't have the caloric need. Boy, do we all do that with the abundance of food around us. And so there's mindless eating, and we we also are wired to do that because we don't need to use our attention to eat because that's a survival mechanism. We want to just, you know, you have the bucket of popcorn in, a movie, in front of you in a movie, and all of a sudden it's gone, and there's no memory of that, right? So that is mindless eating. Emotional eating is... Um, probably one of the more common reasons that people eat, and they might not even be aware of it. And so we've been studying emotional eating a lot, and we do think it's very different than food addiction. And it's it's common, it's low-grade, it causes people to gain weight over time. And the other thing about emotional, emotional eating is that some people respond to stress when and they lose their appetite. And so the, so the only thing that people have in common when those skinny people who lose their appetite... I happen to be one of those. Um, and most people who actually get an increase in cravings when they're stressed, both of them turn to comfort food. And both of them, if you're under a lot of stress for a long time, are going to develop more abdominal fat. And so that is the unhealthy fat pattern that people develop from emotional eating, skinny or obese, it doesn't matter. It changes our palate, it changes our drive for sugar and uh, sugar, fat, salt. So the question was, um, when I was 13, um, I, I had mentioned in my story that I wished that I had been able to talk to my parents. Um, and what can kids do? I think that's what you were asking. Um, the last people I wanted to talk to as a 13-year-old were my parents, of course. But it was more that now in retrospect, I can see how an adult who's willing to be open could come forward and say, oh, sweetheart, I used to eat a lot too when I was grieving or, you know, or, or sweetheart, how's that pain? Do you want to like draw a picture? No one taught me any other skills of how to deal with my grief. Um, and then food started working. And so as I was able to cover, my parents didn't see that I was in grief. 
Um, so I, I really do feel, and I say this often, is like I really do feel that we as parents or we as important adults and and you know in the lives of younger people, it's really up to us to model how we live, what we've struggled with, and what our solutions are, and not be afraid of butting into their business or speaking out of turn or oversharing. I think quite the contrary. I mean, we are... I have two children, 18 and 22. I don't know if they're children anymore, but 18 and 22. What I see that they're exposed to on the Internet and media and so forth is so gross that coming forward with a personal story of how... I was able to overcome something or how I've struggled becomes their barometer. I really believe that and they know they can speak to me, right? And um, I did just have my daughter come home from a party and she threw up all night and she had had vodka and she said, Mom, I understand why you're sober. I wish I was sober. This feels awful. Why do people do this? <laughs> and... Of course, I wasn't mad with her. I mean, this is an age-appropriate thing that kids do. I don't know it's age-appropriate, but this is a, an age-normative thing that kids do. Um, and she needs to have her experience. And she needs to know that I'm not going to um, act a certain way, expect from her a different kind of behavior than I, I'd had myself. I don't know if that answers your question. for anybody really, but I've heard that addictions are like Dixie cup dispensers. You know, you pull one down and another one pops out. So I'm wondering, <laughs> yeah. is there such a thing as an addictive personality? Why don't you guys take a start that? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to just start with... Um, I always, I didn't know what was called addiction. I always felt like I had an addictive personality. I wanted anything good, I wanted more. Even if it wasn't so good, I wanted more. When I... When I got into recovery and I began to have the awareness of how I was using to change the way I'm feeling, I'm now able to identify when I move on to something else. I can no longer uh, just think of, excuse me, in, in one area of my life. So I can notice, oh man, I'm really overspending. What's going on with me? Have I checked in with me? What am I nervous about? Maybe I should do some meditation. Maybe I should journal. Maybe you know. So I now have the self awareness that. Um, um, you know, my addiction uh, was alcoholism that uh, that caused the chaos in my life to come forward. But I used lots of other other things. For me, I um, I could have a glass of wine, sit there, and eventually have to throw it out. And so, so alcohol has never alcohol and drugs have never been something for me that that I've been attracted to or and and so when I began to see that food well, I was addicted to food it's like why me you know like why can't I have a relationship with food the same way I have with alcohol you know leave it or take it you know uh, cigarettes were I was really addicted to cigarettes I smoked two and a half packs a day uh, for probably 10 years and then, but when I quit cigarettes, you could just get them totally out of your life. You know, you go through withdrawal, even physical, but also social withdrawal around stopping cigarette smoking. But, but eventually, it's out of your life. But with food, it's a constant negotiation for me. And um, so I can't say why. 
um, you know, I there is a theory that everyone in my family uh, had diabetes, and there's a theory that that you genetically have your uh, basically working toward diabetes because you have it, not so much that you get diabetes because you eat too much. And so it's conceivable that that's the seed of it. I, I don't know. And, and at some point, is after I get past the why me? You know, why can't I eat? Like, why can't we eat like we want to eat and not get fat, you know? <laughs> Once I get rid of that, it's like it is what it is. Yeah. I wanted to encourage us to think of, rather than personality, of addiction biology. And addiction is partly genetic. When we look at people with food addiction, they have addiction running through their family in a transgenerational way. There's often parents or grandparents with other types of addictions. And so we know that the neurobiology, that there are, someone, you, uh, someone asked the great question, is emotional eating uh, food addiction? If there's a spectrum of dysregulated eating. Emotional eating is common and let's just say low-grade, binge eating is out-of-control eating. You feel out of control. You eat an excessive amount. And that is disordered eating. If you do it enough, we call it binge eating disorder. It's in our diagnostic book in psychiatry, or DSM. And then food addiction is out here. And that's when it takes over your life. And you have all the symptoms of addiction. It's impairing your daily behavior, your mental health. You're not in control. And so that is different Hardwired neurobiology. Reversible, yes, but there are changes in your sensitivity to receptors that you may have lifelong and you may need to manage. And so many of us have different uh, dispositions and conditions that it might not be addiction, but it's about knowing yourself and creating the conditions to manage your life in a balanced way. And we can't all live crazy high-stress lives, and we need to gear our lives for you know, you might think of it as balance and long-term recovery. That doesn't mean that you're done. Every day is still an effort, and that's balancing your receptors in interaction with your with the life out there and making it support your own neurobiology. So the rats, if you get an addicted little rat to to sugar. You take away the sugar, and then you give it amphetamine. Guess what? That rat is also a drug addict. So the first time it gets amphetamine, it's addicted. So what, that, what Bart Hobel showed is that there's cross-addiction, that the changes in the brain were the same regardless of the drug. A lot of what you're saying sounds to me like it's highly personalized. Um, could be very different for the person if the uh, presentation is overweightness or obesity. Uh, the cause of it could be very different. How do people go about getting a diagnosis? Because is this kind of thought coming <coughs> out into the general medical population, or are people still saying just stop it? I'll be really quick because I think we all probably want to say something about this. Um, there is tremendous underdiagnosis, misdiagnosis, ignoring. Uh, 
obesity is completely heterogeneous. People can get to obesity through 10 different paths. And if one is just grazing a little bit every day, and there are many people with obesity who are metabolically healthy, and many people who don't have this reward drive that drives them crazy. And so we have to really, you know, not just think, it's not, this is not about obesity. This is about reward drive, and, and that hits the spectrum of people across weights. So... Um, we, there are clinics that treat food addiction. There are great resources like um, Food Addicts Anonymous. And uh, we, just, we will put on our website you know, some of these clinics that have full programs for food addiction. But they are rare because it's not recognized. It's not reimbursed by insurance. You're, you know, you're better off having a label of alcoholism than food addiction in terms of getting resources. Did, yeah, didn't want to add anything? I can just like medical professionals um, react. I, so my primary care doctor, uh, I think, is very wise, very experienced, and has uh, been my doctor for a long time. But uh, whenever my weight issue would come up, the co- the conversation would always sort of lead to, "What are you eating?" <laughs> and it's like that. And I just like one time I sort of like just about broke down. I'm like, "What? Where is this conversation going to go?" It's not. It's not that simple. <laughs> and, and it, so I think um, he did eventually help me find a, a good path. I think in, in his head, a lot of it was just, just like you know, personal responsibility and just why are you, you know, what, why are you eating what you eat? Like, because just, yeah, as if that conversation in that you know, little cubby room is going to suddenly fix the problem. So, so yeah, I think, I think it's a challenge. And it wasn't until he guided me to weight loss professionals um, that understood the problem a little bit more. That I, I got some like sound advice, and, and that went beyond just personal responsibility and just stop doing that. Like, yeah. I can say that one of the reasons that I got pretty interested in this area was when I was doing my graduate training, and then when I was doing my residency down at um, VA Palo Alto and Stanford, I worked in the obesity surgery clinic, and I worked in primary care. Um, and I would, I would sh- shadow doctors for their 12-minute appointments with their patients. <laughs> and there's a lot to cover in 12 minutes. And at the end, there would be, like, there would be um, a checkbox, like, review, did, re- did you review BMI with the patient? BMI stands for body mass index, right? So this is, categorizes you as lean, overweight, obese, whatnot. And so the, the on-the-way-out-the-door thing would be, oh, and your BMI puts you in... Type one of obesity, so that exercise class. Um, it would kind of be an afterthought. Doctors are often uncomfortable talking about this because it's going to take more than 12 minutes um, or whatever the appointment time is. It's not what, what the patient necessarily presented when they came in for, for the appointment in the first place. There's just a lot of discomfort around this in the medical community. And um, like Alyssa said, food, di- food addiction is not a diagnosis in the DSM yet. That means it's not a reimbursable diagnosis in your chart. And that's going to really impact uh, what treatment you can get. And I might just add, being on the other side of, the, of, the res- of that situation there, doctors spend way too much time talking about your weight and your BMI and all of that and nothing about your relationship to food. And so they really need to start asking more questions about your relationship to food and how you use food and not so much about your, the weight on the scale because it often has nothing to do with what manifests on the scale but really your obsession 
and I would eat a whole meal before I would go out to eat with friends so that I wouldn't embarrass myself. That is not normal uh, relationship with food. You know, if you if you go to the table out there, you'll see the 20 questions of uh, that, that is about your relationship to food, not your relationship to being fat. Mm-hmm. And so that is the that's in my mind. Tell your friends in the precariat that that's what they need to focus yeah. on because that's the obsession, not the pounds that show up on the scale. Yeah, I just want to emphasize that incredible point. And what we, uh, that it's about relationship to food. And what we've learned also about in all of our research on weight loss and mindfulness, it's about changing the relationship with food. It's not about caloric restriction. And what we know is that if we train people in mindfulness, we can help them improve their metabolic health inside. They have better glucose afterward. And their weight may or may not have dropped a bit, but we've improved their their health from the inside through mindful eating. And so they're eating, they're enjoying it more, they're paying attention to their fullness, they're savoring it. And, and so their eating is smoothed out. It's not as dysregulated, so their glucose and insulin isn't spiking around. Weight loss is, for most, uh, you know, a, a very, let's just say, unreliable goal to ever get and keep. And so we really encourage people to think about where fitness and metabolic health. So our first session was on diet. We heard about the Mediterranean diet and you know having whole foods and high fiber. This is the type of diet that's going to prevent addiction. It's when we're over we overexpose our brain, especially in the womb with babies who are overexposed and kids to this highly refined sugar diet that is changing their impulsivity, their responses to sugar and just setting them up so that if they have by, you know, let's say genetics, they're prone to addiction. You know, we're just priming the pump there. And so it's, um, it's, it's got to be, you know, a focus on healthy, healthy eating so that we're really reducing refined sugars and um, having whole foods and then changing our relationship with food. And I, you know, there are probably many ways to do that body up with fitness and diet, but, but the mindfulness is, a, I think, a really critical skill. Can so, I, can I yeah. just add something else? as a hardcore food addict. It's not my work to learn how to celebrate and savor the food that I eat. My work is to become neutral around the food I eat. And so the mindfulness for the food addict is not becoming a foodie and celebrating food. That All that does is trigger uh, my ill-advised relationship with food Mm -hmm. and so neutrality comes with breathing it comes with recognizing that this is energy that it is my it is my medication it is it is not the christmas dinner eat until you can't stand it because it's it so the mindfulness is you have to be careful to that it's not the feel this taste, you know, like a foodie that we, ah, no, it's not that. It is being mindful that it is, this is sustenance, and I'm going to eat to live, not live to eat, and so just be very careful about mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Really good Mm -hmm. distinction. Um, Let's take questions from back here. 
the question. I think we're all we're all frustrated with the lack of answer. The question wa- or the statement was: Here I am at a top medical school. I have food addiction. Any doctor or nutritionist I see won't diagnose it, believe it, label it. Why can't I get help from it? And F- Food Addicts Anonymous is free, and that has helped a lot of people. It's not the solution for everyone, but it's cert- certainly. Um, something important to be aware of and to, to tell people about if you, if you think they have food addiction. So I think we are in the middle. If you were here last week, you heard Foodgate, and you heard that there are scandals. There are disgusting behaviors from big business and big food that are hiding data and research that, that shows that we get addicted to sugar, that we're going to buy their product more and get sick. Um, and they want to um, so we're uncovering some of that the story's coming out we now know that we've been misled um, as a society from thinking that it you know that we should be eating fat free sh- high sugar food and so you know so many so many of us are just sick from this huge I guess you know greedy food food business conspiracy and we're suffering we have awareness now and we need to be activists we all need to be activists about this new understanding of of diet and big food and be making the right choices as consumers be educating each other and I think that you know um, we just haven't caught up as a as you know nutritionists and medical um, training to understand food addiction. Well, one thing I can say that we're doing because I agree this is a big problem, and one of the major ways that we're going about it is we are developing a biological tool. So right now I'm actually testing a method of doing this in five minutes, and this will be able to say okay we can we can administer this test we can see this result and we have an actual assay for you. And maybe doctors will be more into that, right? They like those dichotomous yes-no, this is biology type type tests. So I'm hoping that by developing this and hopefully having it in doctors' offices and convincing them to use it, that maybe, okay, this can help them accept a little bit more of the fact that, yes, here's this person who's coming into my office. They don't use opioid medications. They're not doing other exogenous opioids of any kinds. And yet, we can take this this opioid antagonist that's used to induce withdrawal from heroin overdose and make them feel nauseated? Interesting. So hopefully, by developing this biological tool, we'll be able to get a little more buy-in um, for the for this food addiction concept. Right. View it as neurobiological, reduce stigma. One more question. Ashley, you choose. Uh, how many hours, days, weeks are medical doctors trained to identify this? I mean, you can't know everything. You can't know everything. I respect that. But how much training, I mean, when you go to your general medical school, will you get? To my knowledge, there is no training in this in medical school. If you do a residency in psychiatry at an eating disorders clinic, you might get some. Yeah. So let's thank our panelists who have shared so much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.